Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our passage today comes from Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 to 24. Listen to what God is saying to you today. These are the descendants of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old, and he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Armandan, and the sister of Laban, the Armandan from Paddan Aram. Sorry about that. <laughs> Isaac prayed for the Lord his wife since she was unable to have children. The Lord was moved by his prayer, and his wife Rebecca became pregnant. But the boys pushed against each other inside, inside of her, and she said, "Is this?" If this is what it's like, why did it happen to me? <laughs> so, when, so she went to ask the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two different peoples will emerge from your body. And people will, one people will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. When she reached the end of her pregnancy, she discovered that she had twins. May God add a blessing to the living of the scripture. God of grace and mercy and justice. God of power and might. God of glory and of weakness and of vulnerability. Meet us here today. In this moment, in this hour. And help us, O oh God, to be changed by you. To encounter you to be strengthened by you, to be loved by you in whatever ways we need in this moment. Lord, may you guide the meditations of our hearts and of the words that are about to come out of my mouth and then the words that come out of all of ours in conversation, that they may be of you. And if they are not, oh God, if we are led astray, if we misinterpret, if we hurt each other, help us to turn around into the second chance you are always offering in Jesus and be reunited once again with who you are and who we can be in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, my daughter is three now, almost four, um, and I have a second child, a son, who's one. And when I was pregnant with him, she was about two, and she was having a little trouble wrapping her head around the concept. <laughs> So we were having a lot of conversations about the fact that a new baby was going to enter the home and what that was going to mean and how that might change her life. And one day we were sitting on the couch and she was cuddled up against me um, and we had talked so much about babies and we had talked so much about this baby, but she was starting to put some things together on her own. Um, and, and she was a kid who, she had recently weaned and she had loved breastfeeding. That was just her thing. And she turns to me. And she goes, Mama, will new baby drink milk from you like I did when I was a baby? And I said, well, honey, 
We don't know. Every baby's different. He might not be able to. I might not be able to. But maybe, yeah, he might. And she looked at me stone cold, right in the eyes. And she said, if he tries to drink milk from you, I will throw him in the trash. <laughs> I got a killer in my house. <laughs> um, and so we had a long talk about how we don't throw babies in the trash. <laughs> That's not how we ever solve problems. <laughs> um, but we also had a long talk because it turned out that what that was about, right, was her thinking that there's only one kind of way to have a special time with someone who loves you, and if somebody else is having it, then you're not. That she thought there was only so much love to go around, and if he got some in the way that she had really loved getting love, then there would be less for her. And so we just started saying out loud every day, um, I love you as much as I can love anyone. I love daddy as much as I can love anyone. I love the new baby as much as I can love anyone. I love Nana as much as I can love anyone. And we would just list all of our neighbors, all of the people at church, all of the people in our family who we loved with our whole heart to remind ourselves that loving one of them doesn't mean you love another any less. So now she has, she has yet to try and throw her brother in the trash. <laughs> Things have gotten better. There are moments of jealousy still, right? And because she wasn't the first and she's not going to be the last, who feels that way? Who thinks that there's only so much and you have to grab and grip at whatever you can get if you're going to get what you need? Because that's what the world has taught us. And for many of us, that's what our family has taught us. Because we grew up in a family that didn't have enough resources or didn't have the kind of love that felt like it would always reach us, like it was, would always meet us. And so we've learned to struggle and strive and grab because we think we have to. And that's what I see here in this story of Jacob and Esau, that they weren't the first set of brothers in Genesis to feel this way about one another, right? We have a whole line of brothers treating one another poorly, and they will not be the last, but this is what they are facing. They are in a family that has experienced enormous trauma and pain, and no member of that family, not mom, not pop, not kid, not other kid, can imagine that there could ever be enough love or enough blessing to go around. Right? Who are the parents here? We've got Isaac and Rebecca. What happened to Isaac? His father was about to murder him on a hill. Right? Like, that, like that's Isaac's life story. <laughs> that's Isaac's deal. That's what's running around in Isaac's head every day of his life. Um, that's what he's living with, right? This is, you, I don't think you forget that. I don't think that goes away. I, I think that stays in your head, and I think it makes you nervous about every loving relationship you ever have for the rest of your life. Because that thing that happened with dad, could it happen again? Could it happen again? Isaac is the only father in Genesis. If you've never noticed this, so the well is uh, ancient Israel's version of the meet-cute at a bar of a romantic comedy, right? Everybody meets their wife at a well. Every Genesis father meets their wife at a well. You go to a well, you meet a lady, you start a conversation, things get going. <laughs> Isaac is the only one who does not meet his own wife at a well. He sends a servant. He sends a servant. And I don't think even he sends the servant. His parents send the servant, right? To, to find Rebecca, to find his wife. I think because... Um, 
he is afraid of any kind of intimacy or connection, right? He's not motivated to start that new family. He's not motivated to start that new relationship. That's not who Isaac is. Uh, it's kind of forced upon him. And Rebecca, when she's found at that well, we don't know a lot about how Rebecca grew up, but we know that she immediately picks a favorite of her children, which is unusual. And we know that she is given the choice. She is asked to consent to come back and marry a man she's never met or not. And she immediately says, I will leave my house. I will leave my people. I will go to do that. I know a lot of people who've left their houses young, who've left their houses early, who've left their houses quickly for a young marriage, and it's not usually because their house was a great place to be. Rebecca's brother Laban um, certainly does, or I just used the wrong word because we were just using it, um, but Rebecca's brother, who later tricks Jacob, right, into taking a wrong wife and to forced labor, Maybe he wasn't so nice to Rebecca either. <laughs> or maybe their parents taught them both to be tricksters in that way, that there wasn't enough love, that there wasn't enough care to go around. And so these two people meet, and then there's Jacob and Esau. And from day one, each of their parents has picked one. And I don't know how many of you have ever experienced either favoritism within a family or sibling abuse within a family. They are things that are rare, but are so deeply harmful and painful when they occur and all the more deeply harmful and painful for the fact that most people won't admit that they're happening. Um, favoritism, other people will say, oh no, they, they love you all just the same. They don't really have a favorite. And you're like, no, I know, I'm in my family. <laughs> I know. Sibling abuse, um, people will always say, oh no, all siblings fight, right? But then the people who have experienced sibling abuse say, no, that's not, that's not what I'm talking about, right? This isn't wrestling. And Jacob and Esau experience both over and over and over again, and it leads to these stories that, that many of us know, that have been told to us over and over again, of uh, first, Esau selling his birthright for a bowl of stew, um, and then Jacob taking the blessing from their father Isaac while he's on his deathbed uh, by wearing a hairy mat to pretend to be his brother. And, and let's think about that, right? Because he thinks there's only one blessing to get. That's what his whole family thinks, that there's only one blessing, there's only this moment, only one of us can get it, and so we have to fight it out. And a mother and a son combine against their other son to leave him in the cold, to leave him in the dirt. And so Esau is filled with rage and anger, and Jacob runs away. <clears throat> Now, a lot of people tell this story uh, first as if it's a story about Esau being dumb, basically because they don't want to reckon with like how awful it is, I think, right? That it's just, this is just not the moral of the story, that Esau wasn't smart enough to not be tricked out of his blessing by his whole family. Um, or that it's a story of that, that part of our scripture, if you can bring up the second slide of the scripture, that is a part of so much of the biblical witness, that it's about how the younger will always overturn the older, the unexpected will always happen, the weaker will always overtake the strong. And it is a part of that story, but it's not just a part of that story. There's a, there's a part of the Jacob and Esau tale that we always leave out, and it's really interesting to me, um, which is the part where they reconcile <laughs> and get back together. After years and years and years of strife and complicated family relationships of his own, Jacob comes back 
to where he grew up and encounters Esau again, and, and he knows that Esau's going to be mad, and he's worried that Esau's going to kill him. <laughs> so the first thing he does is he sends a bunch of presents, right? Oh, look, here's animals, here's stuff. Look, 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 you like me. I'm not going to hurt you. We can act well again. Um, but that's not when they reconcile. They reconcile when they meet in person after, after a night in which Jacob has wrestled a mysterious man for his blessing. When Jacob has wrestled... God, an angel, right? When Jacob wrestles the divine for his blessing. And after that wrestling, he meets Esau the next day, and Esau is in tears. And Jacob calls Esau his master, right? When what he had stolen was the blessing that their relationship with the other around. He honors, I don't care that I got the blessing. I don't care that I got the birthright. I will reverse our relationship so that it can be whole once again, so that you can see that I know what I took from you. Jacob acknowledges what he did wrong, and they meet in love. And their nations, their people, their children live peacefully side by side. This could be a story that we call the prodigal brothers, you know, Um, but we don't. I think there's a couple of reasons why. One, I want to get at how they become the prodigal brothers, how they manage to have a moment of reconciliation after all of this harm. And part of it, I think, is that they've finally learned to be vulnerable in some way, to to weep in in front of one another, to say the things that went wrong, to say that this power is part of what they're afraid of. They've learned to be on their own, to make new family. They've found other sources of love, so they don't have to be quite so desperate for this one. And I wonder... I wonder that if in Jacob wrestling for that blessing, Jacob has somehow learned that in God there will always be a blessing. In God there will always be a blessing and always be love. And so maybe you don't have to fight so hard for the one earthly blessing that you think is running out, right? Because in God there will always be more blessing. You don't have to act like a different person, to do everything you ever thought was wrong, to get this one earthly blessing, because in God there will always be one for you. I think that night changes him. I think it changes what he's willing to do and how he's willing to face his brother. I think there are lessons there for all of us in rooting our confidence in the blessing and love of God, allowing us to... um, both move into relationships that can be reconciled and away from ones that hurt us over and over again, right? If we're rooted in how much God loves us and how much God has blessed us, both of those things become easier. If we are rooted in how much God has blessed us and how much God has loved us, it becomes easier to be vulnerable, (laughs) to cry when we've been hurt, to say when we've messed up. And in that kind of vulnerable and authentic relationship, We can create our own families or maybe redeem parts of our given families that didn't go quite right. That's not always the path. There are times when that path would bring more harm than good, but but sometimes it is, and I think love and openness give us that power. There's a lot to be learned (laughs) about what we can do after pain from here. And so why is this the least told part of the story? Why is this the least told part of the story? I don't think it's because of what happens here. I don't think it's because of what happens in Genesis, in Jacob and Esau's lives, in the lives of their children. 
I think it's because of what happens later. When we think that there's not enough, we do harm to one another in interpersonal relationships, in our families. But we also do this writ large <laughs> as a culture, as a nation, as a people. When we believe in scarcity, when we act like scarcity of resources and power and love is the way of the world, we do harm on much, much bigger scales. And that's what happens to the nations that proceed from Jacob and from Esau. All of the people who come from Esau become a nation called Edom. And all of the people who come from Jacob become a nation called Israel. You may have heard a little bit more about that one. <laughs> but both of them are present throughout the Bible. And in the centuries after Jacob and Esau's interactions, those two nations start to do to one another much worse versions of what Jacob and Esau did in life. For a time, Israel colonizes Edom, almost genocides Edom under one king. Then the tables turn and Edom in part colonizes part of Israel. Later, um, in a particularly painful moment, Edom is one of the many nations that helps to destroy the temple, to destroy the center, the heart of the people of Israel, and to contribute to the most um, traumatic break in, in their national life. And after all of that, you start to see these ways that Esau gets talked about in the Bible that are totally dismissive. So we get in Obadiah, we get in Micah, right? Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. God hates those guys. God hates those dudes. And Micah is convinced because of what he has experienced from that nation. Because of the oppression and destruction he has experienced, he is convinced that these people must be entirely without God. That there is not enough God or love or justice to go around, and because of what they have done, they are absent of it. And then Paul, centuries later, is writing Romans, and he quotes it again too, right? Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. God just chooses some people and doesn't choose others. And we learn these lessons <laughs> about how we act when there isn't enough to go around. And one of the things that we've committed to in this sermon series at this church is talking both about the beautiful things that family can be to us. Places of love, places of blessing, places of connection and, and support beyond all else, but also the ways that family can hurt us, the ways that family can be used to hurt. And, and one of the things I think about our culture is that we use family as an excuse to do harm because we think there's scarcity to other people who aren't in our family. Think about how often you hear this argument, right? Oh, there are children being put in cages who are the children of immigrants. I need a country that works for my kids, for my people, for my family. And people act like that's a moral argument, right? They use family not as an entryway into what love can look like, but as a barrier to who's allowed <laughs> to receive love, resources, power, might, because there isn't enough. And if there isn't enough, anything you do to make sure your family gets what's its is justified. There's a journalist I love who I think is one of the like lights of our time. <laughs> She's just extraordinary, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who some of you might know. She basically covers the segregation beat. She writes always about... Um, 
the increasing levels of segregation, particularly in our schools, but also in all these other aspects of American life. She's a black woman. Um, she went to largely white schools from second grade on, and now studies all the different kinds of schooling that are in the United States, and basically has come to the conclusion that segregated housing and segregated schooling are at the heart of all of the most pernicious ways that systemic racism and um, increase in economic inequality get done in our country. And so she talks to people all the time about this. And she says that what she hears, mostly from white parents, but also from all parents um, who have access to choice when it comes to their school, but mostly white parents, is, um, yes, that is such a problem. Man, segregated schools are such a problem. We need to integrate the schools. And then if she challenges them, do your kids go to an integrated school? Would you send your kids to an integrated school? They always say, well, I can't do that to my kid in the name of some larger social problem, right? I can't disadvantage my child because of other people's kids. And they believe this to be a moral argument, right? If it's in the service of my family, I can justify anything. <laughs> and she writes this really beautiful article um, about her and her husband's decision about where to send her daughter to school and the knockdown dragouts they had over that, right? Like, what are we gonna do? <laughs> and, and she says this thing, she says, my kid is special. My kid is special, but she doesn't deserve more than other people's children. My kid is special, but she doesn't deserve more than other people's children. And I find that so profound because it's so deeply countercultural. When you hear it, you're like, yeah, right? Totally, that makes sense. But nobody lives that way. Everybody lives as if the world is so dog-eat-dog, -dog, so harsh, that you have to take what you can get to advantage your kids, or else everything else will fall apart no matter what it takes. And I get it, and in some situations you have to, but I think we convince ourselves that that situation is the case a lot more often than it actually is. There's this thing that my mom says to me, I'm one of four, I have three younger brothers. Um, so a lot of, you're speaking, Mike, about physical kids. We had a lot of like holes in the wall growing up, you know, various places before we got that energy. And she says this thing, um, you're only ever as happy as your least happy child. You're only ever as happy as your least happy child. Which I think is really true. And I think is how God feels about all of us. If anything God has ever said about the body of Christ is true. If anything God has ever said about the body of Christ is true, the body of Christ is only as healthy as its least healthy member. The body of Christ is only as just as its most oppressed member. The body of Christ is only as joyful as its most sorrowful member. And if I'm going to live like Jesus, I have to recognize that my kid, or for you, your family might be your roommate, or your drag mom, or that person at work who is always there for you, or your bro brother, or your parent. My kid is my whole heart. I love her fiercely. I do love her more than other people, you know? <laughs> I do love her more than other people. But if I make a choice 
to send her to a segregated school, which in the city of Chicago means any school that has more than 30% white kids, right? Any school that has more than 30% white kids is a segregated school in the city of Chicago. If I make a choice to send her to a segregated school, if I make a choice to grab any advantage I can get for her, I am saying that somebody else's heart, somebody else's heart that lives outside of their body gets less than mine. And I don't think that you can love Jesus and be a part of the body of Christ and live your life like that. So all of us are going to mess up, <laughs> and we all face different options, and some of us start out more disadvantaged than others. <laughs> and when you do that, grabbing advantage is a different game. But I think the call to all of us from Jacob and Esau is twofold. It is one in our personal relationships <laughs> with the people we encounter every day to have hope, to be vulnerable, <laughs> to be open, to believe that after 30 years, embrace and joy might come. It is to know that in our relationships and our friendships, in our families made and whole, we do not need to fight for love, that love makes more love and there will always be enough and there will always be enough of God's blessing. And then the second call is to live like that in the world. <laughs> to say that if we are true witnesses, if we are testifying to the reality that God's love is abundant, that God has given the world enough, then we do not need to grab, we do not need to cause pain to others. Anything that is good for us will be good for the body as well. Because that's what it means to be members of one body in Christ. So we might not know yet what that's going to look like to live that out day to day, but we're going to figure it out together. Because that's what church is. And I am blessed, and I am excited, and I am glad to be on that journey and asking those questions with you. Amen.